0: This is a podcast by The Business Times. The Singapore FinTech Festival is into its fifth edition and this year's festival will highlight that innovation is not limited by physical borders. The -the round-the-clock event can now be accessed virtually to participants around the world. And with its 24-7 offering this year, it has also attracted luminaries to speak, including Bill Gates and Sundar Pichai. In this special podcast edition by the Business Times, we are here with Ravi Menon, Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, to discuss topics that would define this annual highlight on Singapore's calendar. Thank you for joining us this year again, Mr. Menon, and we hope you've kept safe and well.
1: Yes, good to see you again, JB.
0: We've covered the festival for five years now. Every year, something new pops up, which speaks to the spirit of innovation celebrated here. Of course, this year change has come in a very dramatically different form. pandemic has swept through the globe, and that has brought fresh challenges in so many different aspects. How has this year's festival been adapted for these extraordinary times?
1: Yes, so this has been an unusual year. At first, we were wondering what is it going to mean to the FinTech Festival, because the whole fundamental success factor of the FinTech Festival is the large gathering of people, right? Networking, collaboration, listening to speeches, and so on and demonstrations of products. So this was quite a challenge when we had to review how the FinTech Festival was going to look like. I think the format we've hit upon, we've probably made virtue out of adversity because now we have a hybrid model, both digital and on-premise in person. And because of the travel restrictions, then we are forced now to innovate again and have this format of having more than 40 satellite cities and there will be a 24 by 7 digital coverage across the world. It's a first of its kind, and if we do it well, this may well be the beginning of future conferences adopting this kind of format. So let's see how it goes, but we are very much looking forward to it, and the amazing thing is that because of the new format, we've been able to get a lot more good speakers who otherwise might not have travelled all the way to Singapore, but now we've made it a lot easier for them to participate in the festival.
0: How does this place Singapore on the world map in these times? I mean, bearing in mind that in a time of global health crisis, the messaging also has come across where there are threats of a more insular, isolationist world, where the themes of globalisation continue to be revisited. But as we talk about innovation, particularly within finance, the idea is that it should cross borders and it shouldn't be limited by physical boundaries. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more on that.
1: That's exactly what the FinTech Festival demonstrates that even in the face of some restrictions that are placed, be it for pandemic purposes, or in some cases for protectionist reasons, or in other cases for security purposes. But none of these stand in the way of the FinTech Festival. And by extension, the kind of innovation we're seeing around the world is unhindered by restrictions of this sort. It truly demonstrates that innovation transcends borders. People can connect, even in the face of traditional restrictions. They can connect, collaborate, and that's a wonderful thing about digital platforms.
0: Let's turn specifically to the topic of FinTech. Obviously, that's what the Finch Festival is about. How does the FinTech trends show this resilience amid COVID-19?
1: Quite well, actually. When the pandemic first hit, I think most of us expected small and medium enterprises to do worse. Startups would be starved of capital and financing and no business. So we were deeply worried because this was a fintech ecosystem that we painstakingly built up over five years from less than 50 firms to more than 1,000 fintech firms now. We were pleasantly surprised at their resilience. And we launched what we call the Green Shoot Series, regular webinars and platforms and events where people connected, shared experiences, networked, made business, and fintechs were able to survive, continuing to provide their services. Again, what we did not expect paradoxically, because of the nature of the restrictions, digital platforms, digital solutions have taken off in a big way, which meant a lot of business for fintechs to provide these at very short notice. And the best is the investment numbers. Today, for the first 10 months of the year, it has attracted $1.2 billion of investments into the fintech sector. This is 30% more than last year. And that's something we wouldn't have expected at all in April or May.
0: So you found sort of resilience and opportunity amid adversity in these times. There was a Employment Outlook survey that was just put out this week, and I think you spoke about it just yesterday. It showed that financial institutions here plan to offer 1,800 newly created jobs through to July 2021. The point was made too that tech-related jobs make up about half of these new jobs. So there was a call for financial institutions to not be complacent, despite the relatively better performance of the financial sector. So with demand for technology skills in the financial sector here to stay and certainly it speaks to the fintech trend, how should the sector keep ahead both for staff and companies?
1: Yes. It is actually good to know that there are so many vacancies in the tech space. If anything, what the financial sector has shown is that technology creates jobs. You know, every time we read about how technology is threatening jobs, but the evidence is to the contrary. More than half the jobs that are going to be offered are in the technology space. And just to step back the last five years, where the financial sector created 3,600 net jobs, we wouldn't have expected that we could have beaten the target of 3,000. And most of those jobs, a good part of those jobs were in technology. So technology creates demand for jobs. I think there's no question about it. The bigger challenge is actually the supply. Can we have enough people trained to do these jobs? These are good jobs, well-paying jobs, highly demanded. And the more we can build up our pipeline of talent and skills, we can seize those jobs. And so that's what we're very focused on. We're in a very fortunate situation. We are not in a situation of other countries where there's a shortage of jobs. Here we have jobs. Our challenge is to train people to take those jobs.
0: And you mentioned, of course, that to mid-career professionals in particular are those that financial institutions should take a calculated chance on. Maybe you could speak a little bit more about that as well. You know, How should banks or other financial institutions be ready to take on these individuals that are out there looking for a new experience, an opportunity to move into a new sector?
1: Yes, this is where we need to, in some ways, change our mindsets. I think many employers, and I fully understand, we like to employ people who can hit the road running, who are fully skilled and trained and experienced for the roles. If every one of us does that, that's going to leave many of these mid-careers in the lurch. Now, these are good people. They have strong experience in the financial sector or sometimes other sectors. And they have good work attitudes. They're senior. They're intelligent, hardworking. They just don't have certain specific digital skills or technological skills. And it's a lot better to take good people like that, experienced people, mature individuals, and train them. It may take a bit longer to get them up to speed, but I think the long-term payoff is much better. And that's what we're working with the financial institutions on. And more financial institutions are coming around to that view that rather than get ready-made tech talent, why don't we make tech talent out of our existing talent whom we know, who have contributed well, and we know are up to the task.
0: And in fact, the theme yesterday was to grow your own timber, right? Was to make sure that Singaporeans are able to rise up to this challenge. It also brings to the point about the balance with the foreign talent. And of course, given that the supply remains limited while the demand is rising, How should perhaps banks better integrate the interactions between foreign talent and locals, particularly in this area, to really ensure that the timber grows?
1: Yes, which is why we are now taking a much more detailed look at the kinds of technology jobs. There are tech jobs which Singaporeans can fill without too much difficulty and too much extra training. They may not pay as well, but if we can get them to reset their expectations, take the plunge into some of these lower tech jobs, And then learn on the job and rise to take on the intermediate and advanced tech jobs. That's a good way. Then for the higher-end jobs, now there we do have a shortage. It's not very easy to build that pipeline very quickly. So we do need a complement of locals and foreigns in these jobs. And we need to bring in top-notch foreign tech talents to drive digitalization and innovation. But as they come in, we want to make sure that they work in units that over time that there is a localization strategy. So MAS talks to the financial institutions and tells them, look, we want to keep the place open to foreign talent and tech talent in particular. But in order for that to be sustainable, we need to make sure there's capability transfer and there is a gradual localization of those units over time that the percentage of Singaporeans starts rising in those areas. Of course, then there'll be other new areas where you'll still need foreigners, and we have to just accept that. We'll be selling ourselves short if we don't take the best talents the world has to offer in as many of these technology areas. The question we should ask ourselves is, how can we train more Singaporeans over time to take on some of these jobs?
0: Is there a timeline that has to be put in place so that financial institutions are better nudged into having that better mix?
1: Well, it's hard to generalize across different areas, and so these are bespoke conversations we have with the financial institutions. Especially if MAS is giving a grant for some R&D or related field, then we have a bit more uh, leverage to set some conditions. Say over three years, we want to see the percentage rise from X percent to Y percent. Or over five years, we want to see that percentage rise to so much. And that's all something that we discuss bilaterally with the financial institutions. In more general cases where, you know, we're not giving a grant and they're bringing in these workers, then we go through the profile of the uh, workforce in those business units and say that, well, what are your plans? Tell us your plans for localization. It's not for us to impose. Tell us what is realistic, what you can do. When put the question that way, many of them do step up because they also see the value of localization. When they set their own pace, there is better buy-in and there's better comfort. And they know their business, how fast they can move or maybe some areas will move more slowly.
0: Let's go back to the topic of digital banking, which is certainly a hot topic. We know that the results are due soon. If we go back to the objectives of having digital banks to challenge the incumbents, The aim at that point, and I'm sure remains to be so, is to have digital banks address the gaps in the financial sector, what people perceive to be unbanked or underbanked, despite Singapore being a well-banked market. Having reviewed numerous applications today, how well would you say digital banks can rise to that challenge?
1: We've been quite impressed by the quality of the applications we've seen. Let's step back and see, just to be sure that we understand the landscape well, Digital banking is alive and well in Singapore. Our banks, especially the three local banks here and the foreign banks here, have been offering a variety of digital financial solutions and they've been improving year after year. So we have digital banking. I think the new dimension that is being brought here is non traditional, non financial players who operate in different sectors, but with very large data sets and the ability to crunch that data. Can they apply those capabilities? to the financial services sector. In particular, to reach out to underserved segments of the market. There's no financial inclusion problem in Singapore. Most of us are banked. Most of us can get a loan. But there are specific areas where there is underservice. Take, for example, it's quite easy to get a $200,000 mortgage loan in Singapore. A bank will give that to you actually very quickly. If you're an SME and you want a $20,000 working capital, that too is possible. The banks know how to do this. You are a micro-enterprise you need $200 overnight to make an urgent payment to your supplier. That is difficult for the banks to do. It's easier to borrow $20,000 than to borrow $200 overnight. But we've seen examples in China where some of these non-financial players, using large data sets that they know about the individuals, are able to make a quick credit assessment within minutes and extend that $200 overnight. And they do get the money back and they earn a small interest. So it is profitable, it is sustainable, And that is the kind of thing that we like to see here, where very specific segments of the population, likewise for individuals, financial planning, for instance, is something that needs to be done in a comprehensive, holistic manner. Again, the ability to aggregate data and draw insights from it is very critical. And again, we are hoping that some of these digital banks will be able to do that. And that will provide stiff competition to the existing banks who will then raise their game as well.
0: We know that the digital banks are operating just off the cuffs of pandemic recovery or is going through a time of recovery how would you view the considerations of whether there are too many or would that change the way you review the number of digital banks that we should have in the system today
1: I don't think that would change the number of banks we need to have but what we did do is if you recall in June we reached out to all the digital bank applicants and told them, we're going to postpone the exercise because we want to see fresh plans. How are you going to cope with the pandemic and the post-pandemic landscape? So we need to see fresh plans, business models, and pathway to financial sustainability, taking into account the unique circumstances that we are in today and will be for the next few years at least. So that's what we've done. And the digital banks have gone back and come back with fresh plans. And financial strength of the parent is something we look at very closely. The ability to support the operations, even during difficult startup period, and how they're going to achieve a pathway to profitability. So these were very carefully assessed. And it's not just the applications, but we also met them in person to hear from them, get a sense of how they intend to do this. We look at the quality of the management, the kind of people they're bringing in to manage the business and the finances. So it's not just about the technology, it's also about the financial strength.
0: But the timeline surely would change as well, right? Because pandemic, some people have called it the lost year in some sense, where pretty much about 12 months is lost. So in terms of pacing out the progress that we intend to see from the digital banks, have there been changes in the way digital banks are supposed to create their path to profitability?
1: I'm not sure in the digital world we've lost a year. We've probably gained a few years. The digital banks are entering the scene with a lot more Singaporeans now comfortable to operate on digital channels. And so the digital readiness of the population is higher today than it was before the pandemic. Of course, not every segment still, but in that sense, I think the landscape is more conducive for them because we are more digitally ready.
0: Does it also raise the urgency to have that last, perhaps 20% of the last remaining people who have yet to go on this digital train? How much more important is that particularly today, now we've seen sort of digital acceleration.
1: Yes, I think that has become even more important. It's a very funny situation. With the pandemic, in one sense, financial inclusion and digital inclusion has been extended. The digital divide has eroded to some extent because service providers, whether it's e-commerce or e-payments or banks and others, have had to really simplify their offerings so that they can bring on more of these excluded segments of the population. And we've seen that. Inclusion has increased. However, on the other hand, the group that is still not on board, although smaller, is going to be more difficult. And so we need to now work extra hard on that group. When you have 60% on digital platforms and 40% non-digital, you can cater equally to both categories. But when you have 90 or 95% digital, then you only have 5% or 10% non, that group will find it very difficult because it's very hard to customize and reach out to them. So we have to work doubly hard both the financial industry, the fintech firms, and we're hoping the digital banks will add to that effort as well. And of course, MAS working very closely with the other government agencies, IMD in particular, has been reaching out to food centers, hawker centers, and handholding them with respect to how they can get onto the digital journey, e-payments, e-invoicing and so on.
0: There have also been some cases of security breaches. And as we go digital, obviously, cybersecurity is something that is on top of all our minds. Some of these consumer tech firms actually have also applied for digital bank licenses. So there are questions out there on whether such applicants are prepared to be regulated as banking entities. Do these incidences prompt greater scrutiny over these challenger banks and whether they can meet higher cybersecurity standards once they become banks?
1: Yes, so we've been very conscious of this from day one. And it was one of the things that we debated at length before we even took this step, which is we must hold them to the same high technology risk management and cybersecurity standards as the traditional banks. There cannot be a compromise on that. And although they are technologically advanced, it doesn't mean that they necessarily have all these strong protections that banks have with respect to data confidentiality and so on. So this has been something we've insisted from day one. They are coming in with their eyes open. Part of our assessment of the applications includes a detailed evaluation of their risk management capabilities, especially in the technology space. Precisely because they're operating predominantly on the digital realm, it means that the service recoverability in case of downtime That's very important. The kinds of cyber defenses they have around their systems, very important. The ability to patch and upgrade their infrastructure, very important. Many of them also would not be operating with traditional servers, but probably using the public cloud. And that has its own set of challenges. Although the cloud makes it easier for very efficient provision of services, very quick data analysis and so on, it has its own risks. So we are paying particular attention where digital banks are going to be using predominantly the public cloud to manage their data. This is something we are very, very much on top of.
0: We've been speaking with Mr. Ravi Manon, Managing Director of the MES. The Business Times will put out its annual Singapore FinTech Festival special in support of this upcoming event. The Singapore FinTech Festival runs this year from December 7th to December 11th. This has been the Business Times Banking and Finance Editor, Jamie. Thanks for listening in and we'll see you at the festival. That was an SBH podcast by the Business Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast at You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at the Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3. Any financial or investment information in this podcast is for use in Singapore only and is intended to be for your general information. Any particular investment or decision should only be made after consulting with a fully qualified financial advisor.